pray before we get started. Uh, Father, I just pray that as we open up your word, as we dig into this book of joy and uh, just talk about what you have done for us, Lord, that your words would be spoken, that it would uh, just get down inside of us um, and affect the way that we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was uh, talking to Alicia earlier this week, and I had asked her the question. I said, if you could meet anyone in it, well, we're going to meet everybody, but when we get to heaven, who is the person that you're most excited to meet? Like, who's at the top of your list, right? And, I mean, it, it you know runs the gamut, but, like, who are you most excited to meet, Jason? I know that's putting you on the spot. Oh, come on. Sorry, just the timing of that. Oh, timing of okay. Here's the point. We all have somebody at the top of our list, right, that we really want to meet when we get there. Mine in particular, I can't wait to meet David, King David. I mean, what a story. I mean, rags to riches, literally, right? Rags to riches. The guy was a giant killer. He was a military expert. The guy was a writer, a poet, a musician. He probably even cooked, too. That was incredible. He did everything. I mean, women were singing songs about him. Men were drawn to him. Even in his lowest moments when he's hiding out in a cave, men were flocking to David. Um, and even when, he had, when, even when he became king, I mean, he had everything. But even in that, he still had his problems, right? And not just the more money, more problems. But he had problems in his family. Um, David had a son by the name of Absalom. And the Bible tells us that he was flawless from the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was nothing wrong with him. I mean, this guy was like Fabio. He had long flowing hair. He'd ride around in his chariot with the top down, you know, <laughs> hair just flowing in the breeze. <laughs> Bible tells us, specifically, he only cut his hair once a year. He cut his hair once a year, and when they did, it weighed five pounds. Like, that's how much hair this guy grew in a year. He had awesome hair, apparently. Um, this guy was a prince, but the problem was he was filled with pride. Like, he knew he was something else. And so he was David's son. David and Absalom had a falling out. And Absalom ended up running away. And at one point in time, he ends up coming back. Eventually, he does come back to Jerusalem. But he isn't fully reconciled to his father. And so he's in Jerusalem, but he doesn't go and see David again. And so what he does is he goes down to the entrance of the city, goes down to the gate. And for those of you that were with us when we talked about the book of Ruth, um, all of the elders of the city and the guys that would act as judges would go down to the gate. And anybody that had a dispute or if they were doing some type of business deal that they needed witnesses for, they would go down to the city gate and those guys would help them solve their problem. And so he went and sat down there. And as people were coming up to Jerusalem, they had something that they wanted to talk to David about. He would pull them aside. He would say, hey, you know, what's going on? Tell me, tell me what's going on. And so they would tell Absalom what was going on. And he would say, oh, that I was a judge in Jerusalem and I could give everybody justice. And so what he would say is, you know, the king's really busy. Like he's too busy to hear what you're saying. But if I were king. And I, I would listen to you. I would give you justice. And it tells us in 2 Samuel 15 that he stole the hearts of the people. Because the people would come up to him and they would go up to shake his hand. And he would just grab them and embrace them and give them a kiss. You know, I mean, that's what he was doing. He had a little bit of a politician in him. And so he was stealing the hearts of the people. And it tells us specifically that he led a revolt against his dad, against King David. And he led a rebellion and he chased David and his family out of Jerusalem. They ended up fleeing. Interesting to me because it says that David 
made the ascent up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, as he chased him out. So him and his family have to leave Jerusalem. But David's mighty men, David's mighty men rally together. They go to take on Absalom's men so they can get David back into Jerusalem, take the throne back. And it just so happens that the battle takes place in a forest. And they're fighting in the forest, and David's mighty men are routing Absalom's men. And Absalom sees what's going on, and so he says he mounts a donkey, he gets on a donkey, he starts riding through the forest. Now, I don't know why the prince had a donkey and not a horse. Maybe it was symbolic. I don't know. But he's galloping through the woods, and it says that his hair, it's been a while since he had been to the barber, and his hair is just, you know, flowing in the breeze, and his hair gets caught up in a tree. Gets caught up in a tree, he gets pulled out of his donkey, and he's just dangling there from a tree, suspended between heaven and earth is what it tells us. Now, David had said, don't hurt Absalom, right? Bring him back to me. But David's mighty men found him first, and they did him in. They killed him. And this man who was filled with pride tried to overthrow his father and take the throne. But there was another man, another son of David, is what we call him, who was weeping in the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, not filled with pride, but filled with humility. He had stepped off his throne. He wasn't trying to steal the throne. He stepped off of his throne to come here to earth. And he rode a donkey too, but not in retreat, in triumph when he rode into Jerusalem. He didn't get caught up in the tree. He laid down on the tree, down on the cross. One son of David filled with pride. Another son of David filled with humility and laying his life down for you and me. I call this message today, What Has Jesus Done? And you guys probably remember the WWJD, the bracelets. Uh, Elena still has a WWJD bracelet on her water bottle, um, which I thought was fun. But what would Jesus do? That actually came from a book. I just happen to have this in the church library, which is in my house. Um, <laughs> a, book called, <laughs> a book called In His Steps. And it's a book that was written by a pastor named Charles Sheldon in 1896. He was a pastor in Topeka, Kansas. And he wrote this book, sold 50 million copies. Popular book. It's where this came from. And in the book, it's about a pastor who challenges his congregation over the course of one year before any decision they make to ask the question, what would Jesus do? And what ends up happening, it doesn't just turn the church upside down, it turns the town upside down. Because the people in this church start asking that question and it affects the way they live and that you know, has ripple effects beyond themselves. There were sacrifices, there were embarrassments, there were strained relationships, broken relationships. But every week they would gather at church and they would talk about the things that were happening that week. And they would be joyful about all the things that God was doing and seeing him work. Um, but when you ask the question, it's one thing to ask, what would Jesus do? It's another thing altogether to do it, right? It's another thing altogether to do it. That's quite another thing. The question has to turn into action. Before we can ask the question, what would Jesus do? We first have to look at what Jesus has already done. So turn with me if you have your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We are going to do verses 5 through 8 today. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
have this mind among you. What mind is that? Well, it's the one that we talked about last week in verses 1 through 4. Um, having a mind that's submitted to Jesus because of what he has done for us. He had a submitted mind to the Father. We have a submitted mind to Jesus. He has given us, as we talked about last week, encouragement. He has given us comfort in love, participation in the Spirit. He's given us sympathy and affection. Our lives need to be lived as a response to what he's done for us. And part of having a submitted mind is asking the question, what would Jesus do? But first, we have to get to the point where we look at what he's already done before we can ask that question. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, Paul is getting ready here to drop some real theological bombs on the church in Philippi. And a portion of what is called a theological diamond, because of the way it shines out in this particular portion, because it's so central to our faith, what Paul is about to write. Actually, I read this in a couple of places, that these verses, 5 through 8, were part of a hymn that the early church used to sing. And they made it into a hymn so that they could remind themselves of this reality constantly. Uh, it was part of their creed. I think we should sing more hymns. <laughs> Lane's making a scary face back there. <laughs> I think it would be cool if musicians today took on the task of modernizing some of the old hymns because they're so theologically sound. A lot of music that we sing today is all about us. We sing about it and we put ourselves at the center, but I guarantee when we're standing before the Lord, we are going to be singing about Him and how awesome He is, and we're going to be blown away. We will not be thinking about ourselves. And Paul is talking to them here about having the mind of Christ. And he goes on to write one of the most significant portions of Scripture that we have in all the New Testament. Um, Paul gives for us four characteristics of Jesus as we consider what he's done for us. Um, here's what we're going to address. And I'm going to give you the points ahead of time for you note-takers. And then we'll go through it one by one. We're going to talk about his divinity, his humility, his humanity, and then his desirability. His divinity, being in the form of God. Now, people get off into all kinds of weird theology when we talk about Jesus as fully human, but also fully man. Uh, there are people who will come knock on your door and tell you that Jesus was not the God, but a God. That Jesus was just a God. Now, that seems problematic to me because now you have two gods. Which one are you supposed to follow? And they also may say that he became God, but he was actually a created being. He was a manifestation of Michael the Archangel or something like that. Um, and some people will tell you that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. But the people that say that aren't reading their Bibles because he did so on multiple occasions. Um, for those of you that know Pastor Michael, he was the guy that came and spoke at the golf course uh, when we were over there. Uh, he just started the book of Genesis. Uh, which is a major commitment. <laughs> They're going to be in there for the next couple years. But his first sermon, he preached on the first four words. That's it. We're doing four verses today. He preached on the first four. Were you guys there for the first? Yeah, they were there. First four words. First, first four words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That was his whole sermon. And his basic point was, if you don't agree with the first four words of the Bible, you're going to have a really hard time believing anything else that it says. John says in his gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. He also told his disciples in John 10, 30, he said, I and the Father are one. 
And in John 14, 9, Jesus told them, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. These are just a few of the places where Jesus did, in fact, claim to be God. And when it says being in the form of God, that word being is in the present perfect tense. And as if it wasn't, you know, interesting enough to do word study last week, now we have some grammar. Um, that word being the present perfect tense means that grammatically um, he always has been and presently continues to be God. He always has been from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. And then that word form in the Greek, the root word is morphe. There are two words for form in the Greek. Morphe refers to our essence, that part of us that does not change. That's where we get the word metamorphosis to be transfigured, but it speaks to our essence. God, Jesus, the Father, and the, and the Holy Spirit all share the same essence, if I can say it that way. Um, they are all distinct personalities, but they are all one. And that is a mystery that we do not fully understand. Um, I don't want to kind of get into trying to explain it because there are lots of ways that people have tried to explain it. And it, you know, oftentimes ends up into things that are really very heretical. Um, but, you know, it's impossible to describe and that's okay. Like we don't need to know all of the answers. We don't need to know how it works. Jesus said it, so we believe it. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grabbed. Now, Jesus is God, so he wasn't claiming something that he didn't have a right to claim. This is the reason why the Pharisees wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy, for putting himself on the same level as God, as Jehovah. In Luke 5, we have a story of uh, some friends. Jesus is teaching in a house, and it is packed out. There's people all outside the house. They're trying to listen to what Jesus is saying, and these people are bringing a paralytic. They're bringing a friend of theirs, and they're trying to get him to Jesus, but there's no way that they can get him to him. So they actually go up on the roof, and back then they had these thatched roofs, and they would start taking apart the roof so that they could lower their friend down to Jesus. And when he gets to the bottom, Jesus says to this man, he says, you, he says, your, son, your sins are forgiven. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes who were there, the Pharisees, freak out. Because they're like, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is like. <laughs> now, it's interesting to me that he said your sins are forgiven because he's paralyzed. Like, his need physically was that he wanted to walk again. But his real need, spiritually, was that he needed his sins to be forgiven. And I've read some things that people have speculated that maybe he was paralyzed because of some sin that he had committed. And that was a thing that was eating him up inside. But really, what he needed spiritually was to be forgiven and made right with God. So he wasn't claiming something that he didn't have a right to. In John 8, Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, that set off some red flags to the Pharisees because when Moses was in front of God and he said, who should I say sent me to you? He said, just tell them I am has sent you. So when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, they got that saying pretty clearly that Jesus was claiming to be God. His divinity was on display. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. We have to empty ourselves of ourselves, of our rights, lay them down, and become a servant and live a life that is totally guided by the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our second characteristic of Jesus, and that's his humility. You know, Jesus didn't need anything. He didn't need humanity. He didn't need people. I mean, he's in heaven. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit with the angels perfectly content. 
but he desired relationship with you and I. That says a lot about his nature and his unselfish concern for people that he was going to be creating. We don't have to ask, what is God like? We don't have to ask that because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus spent his time serving and caring for others sacrificially. What does it mean that he emptied himself? One translation says that he made himself of no reputation. That's what Jesus did. What did he empty himself of? Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity. That would have been impossible. It says that he is fully God, but he is also fully man. He did, however, divest himself, lay aside his divine powers, his divine privileges, his divine, his divine prerogatives. He did that when he became a man, but he was and always will be God. He chose to limit himself when he was born in human form. He chose to be a human forever. The incarnation is the greatest act of humility as the creator of everything chose to enter into his creation. Now, admittedly, this is a really difficult concept to wrap our minds around. Uh, even Paul says so when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. Tim, Tim, 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The great mystery. It was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14 said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, of course, God with us, right? He emptied himself of his divine power, his divine glory, and also his independent authority. Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus laid aside his independent authority to follow the Father's will. Jesus' philosophy in life was, thy will be done. Like he said in the garden, thy will be done, not my will be done. But Satan's philosophy is, not thy will be done, but my will be done. I want to be the creator. That's what Satan wanted. But Jesus, who was the creator, became part of his creation, a creature like you and me. Why? So that we could know him. So that we could get to know God and what he is like. Like the little boy who asked his mom as he was looking up at the stars. And he said, you know, mom, are you sure that God is up there? And his mom said, well, yeah, of course God's up there. God's everywhere. And the little boy says, well, you know, sure would be nice if he poked his head out every once in a while. And that's what God did when Jesus came to earth. He was poking his head out so that when we look at Jesus, we can get to know him through him. And that was always the plan. Jesus coming here to redeem us. It wasn't an emergency plan. It wasn't them freaking out because Satan has rebelled and they threw him down to earth and man sinned. This wasn't an emergency plan. This was always the plan. We're told in Revelations 13, 8, that he was slain before the foundation of the world. That he had submitted to the Father's plan since before time began. That's humility. That was always the plan. And now we come to the next characteristic of Jesus. His divinity, his humility, and now his humanity. In verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God stoops from heaven to earth. 
from becoming the creator to becoming part of creation, from life to death, from divinity to humanity. And when Jesus came to earth, he entered into a human body from which there is no escape. He did it permanently. Let that sink in, really, that Jesus became human forever. When Jesus came to earth, he did so in a human body. When he rose from the dead, he did so in a human body. He proved it to the disciples who thought he was a ghost. He said, hey, do you guys have any fish sticks? I mean, I will eat one here in front of you. Ghosts don't eat food. You guys have some fish. Give it to me. I'll eat it right here. When he ascended back to heaven, he did it in a human body. And he's in heaven right now, seated next to the Father in a human body. When we get to heaven, we will see Jesus in his human body, full of his scars. Um, I, you know, I heard a song this week by Casting Crowns that spoke all about, you know, um, the only scars in heaven will be on the hands of Jesus, the ones that hold us now. Um, don't listen to it unless you want to cry like a baby. <laughs> I looked up the video and I don't like to cry, so I turned it off. But I listened to a message once. <laughs> I listened to a message once and it was the only man-made thing in heaven. The only man-made thing in heaven are the scars that are on Jesus. Um, John says in the book of Revelation, he says, I saw a lamb as though he were slain. That's the way we're going to see Jesus. Um, he chose to be human. And so he emptied himself of his divine powers and added to himself a human body. Now, for those of you that have traveled outside the U.S., uh, if you've been on a mission trip of any kind, then you have experienced culture shock and what it's like. Um, I remember very vividly when Alicia and I went to visit my folks down in Guatemala, and I realized really quickly the things that we take for granted, um, like there's no air conditioning <laughs> in the place where we're going to be sleeping. Uh, like, this is what we're eating again. <laughs> this is the smell that you guys smell all the time. Uh, we went to this open air market, and I'd say open air, but it's really kind of enclosed, and you wind through this maze of, um, you know, booths. And it was all really interesting until we got to the meat market. And it's like 90 degrees, and there's beef, and there's pigs, and there's chicken parts hanging. And it is an interesting smell, for sure. It was nasty. Oh my um, <laughs> it was culture shock. Uh, but then when we came back, I had like a reverse culture shock. It was weird. I remember again, very vividly, I walked into Hy-Vee and I was walking to the back and I walked past one of those islands that had like 30 different kinds of cheese and I just wanted to puke because I saw all of those things. I had just gone from a stick hut with dirt floors, people cooking in the corner to walking through a grocery store that had more food than these people were ever going to see in a lifetime. That was culture shock for me. Uh, but Jesus had the ultimate culture shock when he set aside his glory and became human. In John 17, this is the high priestly prayer that we talked about last week. John 17, 4 and 5 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So Jesus set aside his glory to become human. You know, for the longest time, uh, when I would read the Bible, even into my adult life, uh, I would read the stories of Jesus performing miracles and being out in the desert resisting Satan and calming the storm. And I'd think, you know, well, yeah, I mean, he's God. Jesus is God. So, you know, is it really that big of a deal? But this is huge. And when we get 
a grasp of this. Really, we will never look at Jesus the same way again. That he set all of that stuff aside when he became a man. And he had to live this life in the power of the Holy Spirit. He had to be guided. He had to be led in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, after Jesus was baptized by his cousin, by John, and he came up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, he was then empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was reliant on the Spirit to live a sinless, perfect life. That's why he got away often to desolate places, to talk to God, to be in the Spirit, um, to know His will. Because he, he did miracles. He calmed the storm. He did all of that. He raised people from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we can get that and understand that, we will truly not look at Him the same way again. Jesus came to save us from our sin, but He also came to show us that living... A God-honoring, sinless life is possible in the Spirit. Now, you and I were born with a sin nature. Jesus didn't have that. And our sin nature is really strong. And if we keep feeding it, if we feed it, it will overtake us. Uh, in fact, actually, we don't even have to do anything. All we have to do is just neglect our spirit man and our spirit and our flesh man will overtake us. But if we pray and if we spend time in the Word and we spend time with fellow believers in the Spirit... We can live the overcoming life that Jesus talked about. But the problem is that most of the time, we don't want to. That's the problem. Jesus could have checked out of here in the garden and not gone through the pain and suffering of the cross. He could have said, I told you so. I told you it could be done because I did it. And I did it in the spirit. And you guys are rebellious and you're stiff-necked and you're not listening. And so I'm out of here. But that's not what he did. He loved us too much to leave us where we are. And so he became a servant and he died for us. Jesus had the ultimate culture shock when he left everything behind in heaven and came to earth to face the scorn, to face the rejection of mankind. Most of the time we refer to God as son of God, right? We refer to Jesus as the son of God. But his favorite phrase for himself was son of man. Jesus had used that phrase over and over again as son of man. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but when he said that to the Pharisees, when he said son of man, doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but they would have understood that immediately that he was referencing Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, he writes in a vision about the son of man. The whole thing is about the Messiah, the son of God. And so when Jesus said son of man, not only was he claiming divinity once again, but he was also reminding everyone of his humanity. The hand that touched the leper had dirt under his fingernails. You know, the tears that Jesus cried came from a real broken heart, just like the one that you and I experienced. He felt what we feel. The implications on this are amazing. The next time that we are tempted to think, God, do you care? Like, you understand my situation. We can know that he came here to feel what we felt. He's not a statue in a cathedral. He didn't become a priest in a pulpit. He came here to feel exactly what you feel. In Hebrews 4.15, it tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He faced every temptation, every struggle that you and I fall short on. He knows how it feels. He knows we're, done, we're but dust. However, we can overcome temptation. We can overcome all those things, guys. 
Um, if we choose to press in, if we're willing to press in, if we're willing to pursue God, we can overcome those things. But what we feed gets stronger. That's what gets stronger. For feeding our spirit, we can live that. We can walk away from temptation. We can resist just the way Jesus did. But if we let our flesh pig out, then we're going to be in trouble. It says, taking on the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men. Jesus chose to become a servant. You know, Jesus didn't lose a bet in heaven. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit weren't sitting there thinking, somebody's got to go down there. And Jesus chose the short end of the stick. That's not what happened. Jesus chose to do it. And when he became a servant, he didn't pretend to serve. He actually did it. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but there have been times where I was scheduled to serve. It was my day to teach kids church, and I did not want to. <laughs> I did not have a good attitude. I did it somewhat begrudgingly because what I wanted to do was go to Saturday night church and stay home on Sunday and watch football. That's what I wanted to do. And so we went there and I did it a little bit begrudgingly, but as it is when you serve, you know, it always is good and God meets you there and he gives back. Um, but not Jesus. He did it as a servant. Um, you know, I think of the Last Supper when Jesus went to the upper room with his disciples and they all go in and for whatever reason, none of them think to clean up. They just all walk in and sit down. And Jesus sits down and he starts pouring out his heart. He's telling them about how he's going to be betrayed and that he's you know, making a new covenant of his blood. And so he institutes communion and he shows them, hey, when you guys do this often, do it in remembrance of me. It's my new covenant. And after he does these things, the disciples start arguing among themselves over which one is the greatest. Like, at that point, I would have lost my cool if I was Jesus. I would have been, are you kidding me? I would have begrudgingly got up and grabbed a towel and wrapped it around myself and grabbed the pitcher and the bowl and been like, now I have to give these guys another object lesson because they don't get it. They keep missing it. But that's not what Jesus did. He did it in humility as a servant. This is the mind that's to be in us as it was in Jesus, the mindset of a servant. Last week, we'll look at his desirability. Um, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, at the beginning of the section, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. If we desire to have this mind, if we desire to be like Jesus and follow his example, we have to have the same mindset to be lowly, to make ourselves of no reputation, as one translation puts it. Jesus told his father, he said, if any man would come after me, if any man would desire to follow me, you need to pick up your cross daily and follow me. You need to die to yourself. Um, there's an old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Um, no turning back. No turning back. That's a good one. If we decide to follow Jesus, we desire to be like him, we have to decide to follow him in obedience and humility. We talked about how chapter 2 is all about a submitted mind. And that's what we're talking about here, following him in obedience and humility. Uh, we are never more like Satan, gang, than we, when, when we are prideful and when we're selfish, when we want our will to be done. And we're never more like Jesus than we are humble and when we're forgiving and when we're serving others. That's when we're the most like our Savior. All right, for you note-takers, the incarnation should be our motivation for the demonstration of loving service. The incarnation, Jesus becoming human, should be our motivation 
for the demonstration of loving service, for living it out, the humility of Jesus. If we can grab hold of what has Jesus done, it'll change our desires and it'll change our outlook. And your outlook is going to determine your outcome, your outlook, your mindset, how you view the world. And it's only going to change if we look at what Jesus has done. Now, there's one last thing that we need to add to this, a little bit of practicality before we're done. And it's this, that humility has to move from our minds to our hands and feet if it's going to be true humility. We actually have to live it out. This is the what would Jesus do part. First, we look at what he's done and now what would Jesus do? Uh, these are the things that we talked about last week. The encouragement, the comfort, the participation in the spirit of the saints, the affection, the sympathy. Um, it has to be walked out. It can't just be good vibes. Kyle's laughed at that. Okay. Can't just be good vibes. Here's an example. Sometimes after Alicia goes to the store, she will call me at home and she'll say, are you home? I'll say yes. She'll say, okay, I'm coming home from the store. I need some help unloading. And she'll come home. And if I'm just standing there in the driveway when she gets home with a goofy grin on my face and googly eyes, and I'm just standing there and she gets out of the car and she's like, are you going to help me? And I say, Honey, I am thinking very helpful thoughts right now. I am supporting you mentally and emotionally, and the night may not go very well if that were the case. What's in our mind needs to become the right actions. To have the mind of Christ is to live the way he lived. And here's the paradox, gang. If we're going, and I'm going to bring this back to joy, the more we give, the more we pour out, the more we get back. The more we give, the more it's given back. If anybody has participated in a community, um, a community initiative, or you know, a mission trip of any kind, grassroots efforts, you know this is the case. Sometimes I think the world gets this more than we do. Um, that serving in and of itself, giving back, makes us feel good, makes us appreciative about what we have. But as the believer, it's not just about being appreciative, it's not just about making us feel good, it's about loving others because Jesus first loved us. Um, all of those feelings are a natural byproduct of service, um, and it's a principle of the kingdom. But just because it's true outside doesn't mean that it's not a prin The principles of God are true inside the church and outside the church. So just because it's true out there doesn't mean it's not a God thing. It is true for everybody. For the believer, we do it for joy because of what he's done for us. The incarnation is the motivation for our demonstration. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, I started out by talking about Absalom, son of David, who was filled with pride, who died on a tree, but our Jesus, the son of David, who was filled with humility, our prince of peace, um, and humility and love, who died on a tree, not in retreat, but in victory. And today we've been looking at the incarnation. Next week we're going to look at the exaltation. But before there can be exaltation, there has to be a humiliation. And by that I mean a humbling, an emptying of ourselves, a laying aside of our rights. Um, in obedience, following Jesus. They say that what goes up must come down. But in reality, the way up is to follow Jesus down in obedience and humility. That's the way we need to go. Jesus came down to earth to go up again and to bring his people with him. If we want to be great in the kingdom, we have to be a servant. If you want to be exalted, you have to follow Jesus in service and obedience. In Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, 
It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was hurt because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he had suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We are obedient because he was obedient. Now, it sounds a little strange that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Like, did Jesus need to learn obedience? He didn't need to learn obedience. But what he learned was how we felt our obedience that we need to have, the type of suffering that we were going to go through. That's what Jesus learned. Um, if the worship team wants to come back up, I want to go get the kids. I was reading this week about uh, Arabian horses. And for those of you that know, Arabian horses are the most highly trained horses in the world. And the way they used to train them, they train them in the desert. And the trainer, one of the ways that they would test their obedience, they had to learn to be fully trusting and fully obedient to their trainer. And so one of the things they would do is they would let them go. They would deprive them of water for you know a matter of time, for a matter of days. And then they would let them go near a water source. And then they would all take off towards the water. And as they were getting closer, the trainer would blow a whistle. And if they had learned to be fully obedient, they would stop, even though they wanted the water, and they would turn around and they would come back to their trainer. And their trainer would give them the water that they so desperately needed. They had to learn to trust fully and be obedient fully to their trainer. He knew what they wanted, and he wasn't going to let them die of thirst. God knows what his children need, and if we're obedient... If we follow him in obedience, he will supply all of our needs, but we have to trust in him. We have to be obedient to him. Uh, there was a scholar who said once that when he understood the reason for the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man, once he understood the reason for it, there was no way he could ever believe in a God that would not or could not take on human nature. There's no way he could believe in that God. The incarnation of the Son of God and his sinless experience of what we experience makes him so much greater than any other alternative. His sinless experience of what we experience makes him far greater than any other alternative. Praise him for him becoming one of us, for loving us enough to become one of us. Amen? That's what he did for us. So next week, we will look at his exaltation. This week, his humbleness, his humanity, his divinity, and his desirability. And next week, his exaltation. Because he was obedient to what the Father wanted him to do. With joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love.